Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash. I'm the host of the Articulate Fly. And uh, this evening, it's my pleasure to welcome outdoor writer and event promoter Bo Beasley to the podcast. Hey Marvin, thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our uh, our discussion. I'm looking forward to our chat too tonight. And before we get started, I want to give a shout out to this evening's sponsor, the folks at Jesse Brown's Outdoors in Sharon Corners in Charlotte, North Carolina. They're great folks. They can take care of all of your holiday outdoor needs. And you should go by and visit Bill Barty and the crew at Jesse Brown's Outdoors. And if you want to get more information, just check out their website at www.jessebrowns.com. Well, welcome to the show, Bo. I'm so glad we could get this uh, on the schedule. Me too. Me too. I've really been looking forward to it. Well, I ask all of my guests what their earliest fishing memory is. Uh, my earliest fishing memory is of a farm pond um, in South Hill, Virginia, where I grew up as a, as a young kid. And my father took me to this farm pond owned by a, a farmer that he knew. Um, and we would go out fishing in the afternoon. And it was interesting because um, it was the first time, I only saw my father use a fly rod once. And this was one of the times that I, I saw that. And I saw uh, he was he was catching bluegill. Um, but he took me fishing lots of times, specifically at this one farm pond. And um, also we would go down to Nags Head in the fall and fish off the pier. But I remember one time as a kid, I had this um, like MEP spinning lure, right? I had the attention span of, of a gnat, so like most kids. So I, I didn't want to sit there with, uh, with a worm and a bobber. So I was constantly casting the spinning gear. and uh, um, one, one particular afternoon, I got a really large strike and it was a, it was a big bass and I was afraid I was going to lose it. So, um, I put the rod over my shoulder and ran up the hill rather than reel the fish in like somebody normal would do. And it pulled the lure out of the fish's mouth and lodged into my father's calf. And that was the end of the fishing that particular day. So that was a pretty, pretty memorable afternoon. Uh, I wonder if that was the inspiration for you to become a paramedic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe, I don't know. I'm, I'm second generation. My father was uh, a paid firefighter for the city of Chesapeake. He certainly had lots of opportunities to, uh, uh, you know, when kids are around, they're always falling down or bumping into something. And, uh, um, so that, that particular day, uh, I managed to bury a hook in his calf pretty well, but I, I look back now, I'm, I'm 52. I look back now <clears throat> at the times I went fishing with my dad is, um, some of the, some of the best memories of my life. And, uh, they're really, um, those kind of memories don't ever go away. And it's something you want to pass on, you know, to your own kids. And, uh, it's, and to this day, <clears throat> I cannot, it is impossible for me to pass any kind of farm pond, I don't care where I'm at, pretty much any body of water. If I go over a river or whatever, I always take time to look. But I, I always think, man, what would it be like to fish that particular farm pond? So anyhow, that and, and the time we spent fishing at Nags Head together on the Outer Banks are very, very memorable. Well, that's fantastic. And when did you firmly embrace the dark side of fly fishing? Uh, you know, it was it was a complete fluke. Uh, it was probably in the uh, early 90s. Um, I'd been in the fire department for a while. Uh, I, um, at the time, was a, a paramedic or an advanced life support provider. I, I worked for Fairfax County for 30 years. And uh, one particular day, I was a, a med sergeant on Medic 32 and got a call for trouble breathing at Burke Lake. And the elderly gentleman that was having trouble breathing was named Bob Guess. And I ended up taking him to the hospital. Um, and in the back of the medic unit, I'm just chatting and, you know, trying to have a little bedside manner with this gentleman who was having uh, uh, not a great deal of distress, uh, but some. He'd been stung by a couple of bees and was having some irregular heartbeats, so we took him in. And his name was Bob Guess. And what I didn't know was he was probably the most famous popping book maker in the country at the time. Um, 
And I, you know, he's out walking around Burke Lake. And I said, well, were you out here fishing? He said, no, I was just out here walking around. He said, but I, I do fish. I, I fly fish. And I said, wow, I've, that's really cool. I've always wanted to learn how to fly fish. And he squinted his eyes and looked at me and he said, son, I've got a question. I said, okay. He said, do you golf? I said, no, sir. No, 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 sir. I don't golf. He said, good son, because you can't afford to golf and fly fish. So he said, let me give you my phone number and uh, call me in a week or so, and I'll take you out fly fishing. And that's exactly what I did. You know, it's kind of crazy, but I thought, you know, I really want to learn how to fly fish. And this guy's offering to, to teach me. And about a week later, we went right back to Burke Lake and uh, got in a boat. And he opened up, uh, I don't know if you remember the old 747 tackle boxes that were big plastic three-tier tackle boxes. We got in his we got in his uh, little little John boat there that we rented at Burke Lake, and he opened the 727 uh, tackle box with three tiers of nothing but popping bugs. He must have had a thousand popping bugs, and I've never seen anything like it. And uh, he tied a popping bug on, and he showed me uh, how to cast. And I caught my first bl- first uh, bluegill on a popping bug, and that was it. I was done. I was like, man, this is awesome. I've never seen anything like this before. And uh, <clears throat> later on, probably that summer, we went fishing a couple more times. And eventually, he took me to dance at Sporting Goods in Colonial Heights, which is still in operation, by the way. And uh, he bought me my first fly rod which was a Cortland fly rod bought me the whole reel the outfit everything and gave it to me and um, i never will forget that and that's what started um, my introduction into fly fishing i think for two years all i did was fish with popping bugs because i didn't know any better i didn't know anything and um, i can distinctly remember being in the rappahannock in april trying to catch shad on popping bugs right i, I just didn't know um but that's how I got into it, and and the more I fly fished, the more I liked it, and it, it more or less um, became, as I think fly fishing does for a lot of people, it kind of became therapy uh, for me because <clears throat> at the time, I was a supervisor on an advanced life support unit, and we see some pretty bad stuff. Um, I was never a big rescue 911 fan as much as I like William Shatner, because I'm old enough to remember when he was Captain Kirk on Star Trek, but and now I'm dating myself. But the problem with Rescue 911 is they always saved the person. Well, that's not real life. In my line of work, we lost a lot of people. And uh, some days I would just get off work and go fly fishing to clear my head, just not to, to not see what I had seen and to unhear what I had heard. And fly fishing is very peaceful. And even, like I had a really good day fishing yesterday. I caught one fish. I had a great day. I really enjoyed it. And uh, you just, fly fishing is different. It's not, it's not, um, it's not static. It's constantly moving. And even if the fish aren't biting, you can practice your casting or you can do a good mend or you can, make a good cast and think, well, you know, a fish didn't rise. Um, but if one had been there, he would have. And that's, that's what I like about fly fishing. It's just, um, I don't care whether you're on the outer banks of North Carolina or out at, uh, Atlantic beach, North Carolina chasing false albacore. It's just, for me, it's just very relaxing. And, uh, I really like it. No, I couldn't agree more. Who are some of the other mentors as you kind of, got pulled deeper and deeper into the fly fishing world. Well, as I said, Bob Guess for sure. He spent more time with me in the beginning, uh, probably close to a decade. And I learned so much from him um, just about the industry and about people. And um, he was probably my largest influence, certainly in the very beginning. Um, And then after that, uh, King Montgomery, an outdoor writer from Virginia who kind of took me under his wing and really mentored me quite a bit about outdoor writing and how to get outdoor writing gigs and different approaches on articles. So I owe King Montgomery a lot. And he eventually introduced me to Lefty. Uh, well, that's not true. Exactly. I spoke to Lefty on the phone once, uh, 
and then but got to know him more as a friend uh, with King. And Lefty was a huge influence on me, especially from the festival organization standpoint. Um, just incredible guy. And I would also have to say, um, um, was really got a lot of encouragement from Rick Pope, who's the founder of TFO. And uh, those four guys uh, did a lot uh, to help me in, in different ways. And, um, you know, everybody um, needs somebody to help them out in one way or another. And I remember I, I was being interviewed about a month ago, and somebody said, what's the key to being a good fly fisherman? And I said, well, I can give you that answer really fast. And what he said was, in a couple of sentences, can you tell me what it takes to be a good fly fisherman? I said, I can do it in one word. Humility. Humility. You have to be able to ask somebody for help. And if you don't know how to do something, go find somebody who does. Um, And which kind of leads me back to Lefty said to me that there were only two types of people in fly fishing the people that show their knowledge and the people that share their knowledge. And you want to be around the people that share their knowledge and avoid the other like a plague. Um, and I, that's something I've really tried to um, engender myself and the, with the people I'm, I'm around uh, because you can, you can learn from everybody. Uh, but if you don't know how to cast or you don't know how to tie a certain fly or you, you need to know a certain knot, go ask somebody. And if the first fly shop you go into doesn't treat you the way you should be treated, um, you know, then go on to another one. <laughs> you know, I can remember the very first fly shop I went into, um, I didn't know it was a fly shop. It did not have a name that indicated it was a fly shop. And I committed the unpardonable sin. I walked in with a spinning wheel and asked for some help. And you would have thought I was an escaped child molester. Because I asked for help with my spinning reel and a fly shop. And I walked out of that place thinking, I don't ever want to have anything to do with these kinds of people. If this is what fly fishing is. And this was, interestingly enough, this was long before I met Bob Guess. Um, I thought, I don't ever want to have anything to do with those arrogant people. And then later on, I met Bob and, and dozens of other people who have just been wonderful. Um, and you can find jerks everywhere. Uh, the key is what are you going to do when you find them, right? You're either going to make lemonade out of lemons or you're going to, you know, grit your teeth. And um, I just think we're all better off if we stay humble and be willing to take correction and be able to help other people when they come to us and ask for help. So, well, kinda, yeah, well, and long winded answer. Yeah. I, but I would say, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that outdoors people and, you know, fly fishermen in particular are some of the most generous people that I've ever been around, um, for sure. Um, so you mentioned, you know, King and you mentioned Lefty. When did you uh, get the outdoor writing bug? Was that kind of a, an outgrowth of fly fishing or did you have the outdoor it, writing it, bug before? It, no, no, it wasn't. It was a complete and total fluke. Um, again, it goes back to Bob Guest. Uh, I, I liked his popping bugs so much. But I eventually went to work for him, and I went around all over the state selling these popping bugs to different stores. And one day I got a phone call from the editor of Virginia Sportsman, who at the time was Jim Brewer. And he said, hey, man, I really like these. He was a fly fisherman himself. He said, I really like these, these popping bugs. Uh, could you write an article about them? I said, well, no. I don't know anything about them. He said, well, just – I said, I'm not a writer. He said, well, just, you know. Tell me how they're made. Tell me how to fish them. Tell me how they're different than the other products. I said, well, okay. So I scribbled something out and, and sent it to him. And about two weeks later, it comes out. And for the first time, I see what all outdoor writers long to see, their byline, right? So I saw by Bo Beasley and went, wow, that's, that's kind of cool. I'm, I'm legit. And then I wrote a couple of more articles for him, and I didn't think that much about it. And a couple of months later, um, a different editor contacted me and said, hey, I read this article, and I kind of like that. Would you be willing to do something for me? And, and I said, well, yeah, I guess. I said, but i got to be honest. I really don't know 
that much about it. And and this other editor who who uh, uh, helped me a little bit, his name was John Lacacus, and he he uh, was the editor of Warm Water uh, Fly Fishing or Warm Water Journal. I can't remember at the time. And I was telling him I was struggling with getting him the material that he wanted. And he said, "Look, just go fly fishing." And pretend like I'm sitting in the car beside, sitting in the car seat beside you, and just tell me what your day is like. Tell me what you're doing. And anybody that reads my stuff can see that's kind of my voice. Is it's not very pretentious. It's here's what I'm doing. Here's why I'm doing it. And uh, it kind of took off from there. And then also probably the biggest reason I have gotten so much published. Uh, is I have a secret weapon that I married about 18 years ago, and uh, she's a fabulous editor, my wife Layla, and she edits everything I write, and uh, she's she was literally an editor when I met her, so um, that's one of the reasons why I get so much published, not because I'm a great writer, but because after she finishes with my chicken scratch, uh, most editors like what they see because they, they don't have to edit it as much. so. And I started writing about other things that I liked, and one thing led to another, and the next thing I knew, I was writing for three or four magazines at a time, um, and thankfully now, I've pretty much got all I can say grace over. You know, if I find a topic that I like, it's usually not hard to find somebody that that takes it, and um, um, it's, it's something that I like. I, I really enjoy writing a lot. I enjoy storytelling. And um, people can can go there. Maybe they can't go to the Seychelles. Not that I've been there, but that's just an example. Or, or they want to go to a particular destination and they can't, but they can read about it and go there vicariously. And I just think that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's interesting. So you're humming along. You you know you you get a reputation. You're writing a lot of magazine articles. When did you decide to take the plunge and write write the books that you've um, that you've been uh, working on? You know, it's funny. My first book was completely born out of uh, frustration. Um, I can't remember the year, but I can tell you pretty much where I was. I, I remember uh, I wanted to fish Mossy Creek, uh, probably the most famed trout stream in the state of Virginia, certainly one of the most. And I had a guidebook in my car. I could see Mossy Creek from the road. I had the, the guidebook, which had a map in it, with me. And try as I might, I could not find a way to Mossy Creek. I spent an hour driving back and forth using the map that was in that book, trying to find an access point. And I remember saying, well, this is, this is ridiculous. I, I, I can do better than this. And it, was, it was literally came about because I was frustrated. That I, and I thought, you know, I bet there are other people that can't um, maybe get to a fishery that they would like. And at that point, I'd been writing, had been re- writing for many years. And I thought, you know, maybe I could write a guidebook. And I didn't know, but I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but by that point, I'd been to so many different places that I thought, well, you know, this may not be all that hard. Little did I know, you know, there was a lot of time involved. Uh, but uh, I joke that the main reason people buy my guidebooks is not because I'm a good writer. It's because of the maps, right? They're pretty detailed maps. And uh, Howard Fisher, who is my publisher with No Nonsense Guidebooks, uh, great guy, wonderful publisher, um, is meticulous about having really good maps and accurate information. And I don't try to give every detail. I just let you know, here's how to get there. Here's some places you can park. Here's some access points. Here's some flies, you know, fly suggestions. Here's some of the local guides and fly shops. And just kind of let people do it, uh, do it on their own. But it does take a lot of research. I mean, I drove thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. Uh, I spent much more time on the maps than I did on writing the article itself. Uh, excuse me, writing the book itself. And then when Fly Fishing Virginia came out about two years later, uh, Howard Fisher called me back and said, look, you got to do another book. This thing is really popular. Uh, maybe you could do something on the mid Atlantic. So then 
that was the next project. And fly fishing the Mid-Atlantic covered 45 locations in seven states, and it did warm water, cold water, and fresh water. And um, you, you learn interesting things like, here's a little factoid for you. Most people, uh, you know, everybody's got Google now, but back in the day you did ADC maps. And you went around and you tried to find wherever it was you were going. But what people don't know is, what an interesting fact that I found out through Howard and through doing research about maps and whatnot, every, every page of every map in an ABC book has a fake street. Every single page. Now, there are thousands of streets on some of these maps, but um, there is a fake street on every page. And the reason why is because it was quite common for map makers to copy other people's work. Of course, they didn't have to do the work. They just more or less stole the map. Well, if you reproduce it and that map, that street shows up, that's proof that you cheated because it doesn't exist. You would have had to have copied that to put that in your book. So you learn all kinds of interesting things when you're writing. And that was just one of the strange factoids that I came across um, when I, when I was doing my guidebooks, pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, and I ask a lot of the uh, authors and, and other creatives that I interview about their writing or creation process. And so I'd ask you, you know, how do you like to write? I mean, obviously you've got the research part that you have to go out into the field, but do you like to write at the same time every morning for a couple hours or during the day? Or do you like to say, I'm going to just write this week? Or how do you like to tackle your writing projects? Um, I uh, almost always write in the mornings because by about two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm, I'm toast. Uh, I mean, I still do other work. I'm just not very good uh, at creative stuff. So I'm very much a morning person. Um, I still get up about 4.30 in the morning. Um, and and when I'm really on a writing kick, write for several hours. Um, but, you know, I, I would have to say that for me, I'm more an emotional writer. And when I mean an emotional writer, what what I mean is I'm, I have to be moved by a particular person or uh, a topic or some kind of experience um, that helps motivate me because I try to convey that um, through the article. Um, people who read my work know that I'm, I'm a real history nut. I'm not so much interested in the what of something as I am the why. Why is something named what it is? Why do you fish this particular way? Uh, like off the top of my head, when I was doing the Mid-Atlantic, I found out that Yellow Breaches in Pennsylvania got that name because when the British went through there, they, some of the soldiers washed their pants in the stream and, and it dyed them or colored them yellow from the, from the mud. Um, and that's how the name Yellow Breaches came about for that particular creek. So I'm interested in all kinds of history, and I find that it makes for more interesting reading. I, I joke with people all the time that fishing magazines uh, are like women's romance novels. Uh, you know, you change the names of the rivers and the guides, and it's all the same. Um, but uh, if you go a little step further and find out about a particular area or a fishery or a, or a really interesting guide that motivates me. I really, one of my favorite things is to go out with a guide or go out with someone that I know and I go fishing with them and I take a picture of them when they're not looking. And then about six months later, they read about themselves and they see, um, themselves, particularly if they're a professional guide, obviously that's beneficial for them from a business standpoint. But I just, I like writing about stuff that I believe in. Um, because like I said, I'm kind of an emotional writer. And if I don't believe in it, or I'm not, you know, there's no buy-in, I'm not all that interested. So, so what are you working on? Kinda, yeah, go ahead. 
Well, no, that's just kind of my kind of my take. Of course, the flip side is sometimes that causes me to write about stuff that I don't make any money at uh, from a business standpoint, but I just write about it because I'm passionate about it. What are you working on right now? Um, well, I've got a couple of topics, uh, projects going on. Um, I'm still very interested uh, doing research on access and use uh, articles, riddle bottom ownership, which is a pretty hot topic. But as of late, um, I've, I've doing some research for hunters because now I'm being approached by, I got approached by a duck hunter the other day or the other day, a couple months ago about how he got run off of what he thought was public property. So I'm researching that and it, it takes a long time, uh, to do some of these, uh, access and use articles because, uh, it's legal, uh, research and you have to go through a lot of people. You hear a lot of who shot John. You hear a lot of things that are just quite frankly, not true, but it takes a while to run them all down. And, uh, unlike, um, popular, what passes as popular journalism today, um, I'm meticulous about getting my quotes right and making sure the person that I'm quoting is quoted accurately. And, uh, I'd say 99 times out of a hundred, if you're reading a quote and something that I wrote, particularly from a, a, a access and use standpoint, the person who made the quote got to read it before it ever showed up in the article, and that's pretty rare. Uh, but that's also why I get so many interviews from people that, that that other people don't get, because there's a high trust factor. And I've had people that I've tried to contact and said, hey, I want to interview you for an article. No, I'm not interested. Or they just hang up or they don't respond. Um, but I've had subjects contact me up to a year to a year and a half later and say, okay, I'm ready to talk. And um, when you get access to everybody because you're being impartial, that's really cool. Whether I'm writing about Menhaden management, which is a, a saltwater fish in Virginia that's very important to the food chain, or I'm writing about river bottom ownership and I've got to talk to a politician or I've got to talk to a, 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 a somebody that owns a family farm, if you don't have credibility, you don't have anything. And I've said many times, uh, I might make somebody mad because about what I write, but it won't because it's not accurate. I might make them mad because about what I write, but it won't be because it's inaccurate. They'll be angry because I made something public that they didn't want public, but it won't be because I distorted their position. I just... Uh, you know, as as an outdoor writer, particularly about access and use issues, um, it's not my job. And, and I'm kind of an old school writer. I don't believe it's my job to advocate for the angler. And when I say that sometimes in public, especially if I'm giving a talk at a, a show or something, and I say it's not my job to advocate for the angler. You see eyebrows go up and, you know, people mumble or whatever. And I say and it's not my job to advocate for the landowner either. It's my job to advocate for the truth. And if you know what the truth is, then you can make a decision. And I routinely hear from anglers, hey, I want to know, can I fish here? Can I fish there? And I'm sad to say, most of the time, I have to tell those guys, you know, no, you're trespassing. Well, I feel like, or, or my opinion is, and I always tell people the same thing. There's only two people's opinions I care about. One is, if I'm reading a judge's opinion about a particular case that I'm researching about river bottom ownership or water usage or something like that. And the other is my wife. Other than that, I don't care what your opinion is, you know? Um, and people make the mistake all the time of thinking that wherever they're from, the law from their state should be that way everywhere else. And it isn't. Uh, but we could do a whole nother a whole nother interview on access and use. But that that's my my take is that I try to be ruthlessly impartial. And when you are and when you give the landowner a say and the anchor a say and you let the game department have their say, and quite frankly, when you quote the politician accurately, it's beneficial for everybody. Um the other project that I'm working on that 
is very, very near and dear to my heart um, is I have been working for quite some time uh, on a book about Project Healing Waters, and it has been the hardest thing I have ever had to do. It's It makes my guidebooks look like, you know, Sunday school class. It's just nothing. Uh, because <clears throat> for the past, about the past five years, I've been shadowing two particular programs, um, Project Healing Waters in uh, Quantico and Project Healing Waters in Fort Belvoir, uh, getting to know the people and, um, and writing about the veterans that are there and their struggles. And uh, it's really powerful. Um, but it has been very, very, very slow. And it's been very hard. I, I got to be honest. Um, my plan is to have everything wrapped up and have the thing go to press next year. Um, there are probably some people that doubt that because it has taken me so long. But, you know, these these warriors that I am interviewing, uh, it's going to be pretty raw. They're not going to get the candy-coated version of um, how this particular soldier or sailor or airman or Marine or Coast Guard person got hurt. They're going to get it in those person's words. And it's going to be the unvarnished truth about what happened to them and how they recovered. And um, I think most of the country has no concept. We have we have no idea what our military has to go through to keep us safe. No concept. No concept. And less than 1% of the population is actively serving. So the 99% of us are going from point A to point B, drinking our Starbucks latte frappuccino with extra cream and get mad if it's not exactly the right temperature. And we're being protected by people that, you know, they get to eat when they get a chance when they're on the front lines, not when it's convenient. And, uh, man, I've just met some, some fantastic people in Project Healing Waters. And I've seen people literally, I, I won't say come back to life, but I have seen people come back from a very, very dark place to be very happy, well-adjusted people. And um, I've never seen anything like Project Healing Waters, nothing. And and they're not, um, one thing, there are two things I've discovered. Number one, it's got, and this is kind of surprising, it's got nothing to do with fly fishing, nothing. People will say, oh, Project Healing Waters is a great fly fishing organization. Well, sort of. It's a fantastic relationship organization. And the fly fishing is the catalyst to people feeling connected and getting, you know, opening up and um, they're just, it, it's a great, it's a great organization and um, they're not about events. This is not, Hey, you take a vet to fishing one day or, you know, we're, you're going to go on some great trip for a week to Alaska or whatever. Do they have those kinds of trips? Sure. But what that veteran needs is not five days of great salmon fishing in Alaska, as much as cool as that might be. It's the other 360 days a year that they are not on stream on the trip of a lifetime. And that's why Project Healing Wars works, because they generally have weekly meetings or biweekly meetings, and these uh, men and women in the armed forces have to adjust to a new normal. And it's one thing. You know, uh, say, well, I, I, you know, I had to, I thought I was going to be a banker, or I thought I was going to be a lawyer, or I thought I was going to be something else. And then things changed, and I got fired, and, you know, I had a different career path. That's totally different than being 21 years old and losing your leg. That's, you know, we're talking about a different kind of job change. Um, and it, it's not, uh, the thing I like about Project Healing Wars is it's not just about combat wounded veterans. They take any veteran that has ever served anywhere. If they want to fit into a program somewhere, they can fit in. And I have watched um, Vietnam era veterans who were totally turned away, you know, from their own countrymen when they came back from Vietnam, be at the forefront 
of welcoming these warriors back from Afghanistan and Iraq and different conflicts from across the globe and say, yes, son, I know how you feel. Or yes, you know, um, soldier, sailor, airman, marine, um, I know how you feel. I had a, a, a veteran, uh, a lady veteran who was in the Army tell me recently from California that um, the Korean War veterans and the Vietnam War veterans just related to her in a way that nobody else could. And she said, you know, I was really concerned when I came in there and I saw these guys that were 35 years older than I was in some cases or maybe older. You know, I'm a woman, they're a guy, they fought in Vietnam, and, you know, and she said they could read me like a book, and they could not have been any more supporting. So um, I just, Project Healing Waters is just uh, wonderful, and I was challenged by a veteran, a Vietnam veteran, to write about the organization, and I've been trying to do that ever since, and um when it comes out, um, um, I'm hoping that it, it does honor to the men and women that I had met that have um, done so much for our country, who I think sadly in a lot of cases are, are overlooked uh, or forgotten unless, unless there's some terrible military confrontation at our forefront. Most Americans don't think about the military. But they're always watching. I saw a bumper sticker one time that I'll never forget. I'm not a big bumper sticker guy, but this bumper sticker had a real impression on me. And it said, sleep well tonight because your Air Force won't. And that really struck me. It never really occurred to me that somebody's on duty all the time. There are planes flying over the United States all the time. There are ships patrolling up down our coast all the time. There are Marines standing guard at embassies all over the world. I mean, there's always somebody watching. And this is a dangerous world. And, um, you know, these people keep us safe. But it comes at a cost. And um, I'm hoping to write about that cost and remind people how much we owe them. Well, I know how deeply you care about the organization, and I, I know because I've talked to you about it, you know, over probably the last couple of years about how hard it's been for you to write the book. So I'm I'm confident that you're going to get it the way that you want it to be, and that you're going to make a lot of people really proud. Well, I hope so. I hope I can just honor the people that I have, uh, you know, had the honor honor to meet. Just unbelievable unbelievable stories of uh of heroism and of uh duty and um, it has been uh, it's been an incredible honor just to be with them um and to let them kind of let me hang around and observe what it's like and it's uh, it's been pretty powerful and I look forward to it i just hope uh i hope i can do as good a job for them as they've done for the country well, I, I'm sure you will, and and to kind of shift gears a little bit, I don't want to move away from this, but I, I do want to get to um, your, I guess, well, it's, I don't even know if it's your third career. It might be your fourth or fifth career as an event promoter. Um, you can tell us kind of how you got into the fly fishing event promotion game. Well, it, you know, it's kind of strange. I, I was living in Herndon at the time. Uh, I was working at Fire Station 25, and one day, a uh, guy from Fredericksburg named Smith Coleman, who had taken me under his wing and, and taught me how to shad fish. Great guy. He was a school teacher. Wonderful person. So he calls me up one day out of the blue. And he said, Bo, he said, we ought to have a fly fishing show in Virginia. And I said, really? He said, yeah, man, I think it would be great. And uh, I said, okay, Smith, well, let me, let me think about that. And I thought about it for a little while, and I thought, oh, I like that idea. So I called up uh, and I said, okay, I called him back and I said, okay, let's, let's do this. I'll, I'll do it with you. And about a week later, I called a store uh, and I said, this is who I am and this is my idea. And um, I'd like to invite you to come. And that person did me a huge favor. 
they said to me, no, I'm not interested. It'll never work. It's going to fail. And I took that as a personal challenge. And I made up my mind right then that I didn't care what it took. I was going to do the best I could to put on a really good fly fishing event. Uh, The first one I put on uh, was uh, the Old Dominion Fly Fishing Show. And uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Literally no idea. I had been to a couple of other fly fishing events, but I had no idea what I was doing. And I was talking to my wife about it one day. And she said, well, how do these things work? I said, well, you know, they hire these well-known speakers and, and, and vendors come. And then the public comes to see the vendors and the speakers. And, and I said, but I've, I've got to get a really good speaker. I just don't know who to, who to ask. And she said, well, who's the best one in the world? I said, well, oddly enough, he lives about you know, an hour and a half from here. It's Lefty Cray. She said, well, you should call him. I said, Lefty Cray's not going to talk to me. I said, that, that isn't going to happen. She said, well, you won't know until you try. So sure enough, I called him on the phone, and uh, he couldn't have been any nicer. And um, he agreed, and uh, we, uh, I, I, my wife and I rented out the Northern Virginia Community College's gym. They had a, a, a gymnasium where they had basketball games and that kind of stuff, the activity room. And I worked on it for about a year. Um, and I had, again, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, it was all on the job training. There was no, nowhere to go for help, nothing. It was, I just kind of winged it, uh, but it went well, but my wife was so tired. So she runs the front, right? Sells all the tickets and deals with the public. And I'm in the back with the other public and with the vendors. She got, she was so exhausted that she left the entire receipts, everything we had taken in that day on Saturday, literally, in a cigar box and left it outside of the entrance on a table in public. And she got home at night and was terrified to tell me, because she knew I would come part it seems, uh, that she'd left all the money outside, not outside the building, but, you know, outside the main entrance on a table. And we went the next morning and there it's, there it was nothing, nothing missing. <laughs> and, uh, I still laugh about that to this day. Uh, so I did the, um, old dominion fly fishing show for a couple of years and it got bigger and bigger. And then, um, Someone convinced me to go off-site. Another event organizer asked me to go in with him, and he said, you know, you can run the fly fishing part, and I'll do the general fishing part. Um, And his name was Paul Fuller. Great guy. And uh, and it went well, and it grew again. And then he sold the business to another guy, and this other promoter thought it would be a good idea to put the – so we did a fourth year – so that was two different promoters that I worked with, but I ran all the fly fishing stuff. Well, the last year, the other guy decided uh, that he didn't need my help anymore, that he would do it all on his own because my part of the event was doing really well and his part was not doing so well. And he did it on his own and it was a huge flop because he didn't understand that the fly fishing community is very heavily based on relationships and trust, and it takes a long time to earn a good reputation. Um, so that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, but later on, I was approached by uh, the people with the Virginia Fly Fishing Festival. This was about three years later. And uh, it began in Waynesboro, and they first hired me as a speaker and then hired me as a consultant and then brought me on to help run the event. Um and then eventually uh, it grew to the point that, that they could not uh, keep up with it anymore. And they're like, look, we really want to see this continue. Um, let's work out something where it continues and you kind of take over for us. Um, and that was, uh, you know, this will be our 19th year. And I think I worked with them for about 13 of those years and then three years uh, uh, completely running it um, on my own, and 
it's um, eventually moved from Waynesboro, Virginia, to Richmond, Virginia, uh, at the Meadow Event uh, Building, uh, the Farm Bureau Building at the Meadow Event Center in Goswell, which is just outside of Richmond. And it's just exploded. Um, uh, we'll have over 100 vendors there this year. And, you know, it, it's a lot of work, but I really like it. And um, um, you just get to meet some of the most interesting people. So I had, it was all, all on the job training. I've never, never had any kind of classes on how to do this. I just went to a lot of places that I, I went, to, I had a lot of experiences that I didn't like. Um, so if you come to my event, you're going to have great food because I cannot stand bad event food. I won't stand for it. Um, you're going to have a great hotel. And I've had issues with hotels when I was an average vendor and, uh, just not good service and didn't get anywhere. And at my events, we go to very good hotels and I tell all my vendors the same thing. If you have a problem with the hotel, you don't have a problem with the hotel. You tell me and I'll take care of it because, you know, your job is to come here and entertain the public and sell your goods and educate the public, not fight with the hotel and knock on wood. Um, I've not had an issue with a hotel in over a decade. I mean, they just, you treat people right. It, it comes around to you. So I'm going to knock on wood for you too. Um, what's the, uh, what's the yeah. big, what's the biggest lesson you've learned in your journey as an event promoter? Um, the biggest thing is, uh, relationships and those take a lot of time to build relationships and, uh, that it is almost impossible to plan too early. Um, I joke all the time that uh, my job as a firefighter and uh, uh, an emergency medical provider was perfect training for event management. Perfect. Because, uh, you know, I, I spent 30 years with Fairfax County Fire Department. And when I retired, I was a senior paramedic and the captain on my shift on Engine 27 in West Springfield. And when that bell goes off, it's all business you better know what you're doing when you get there because you can't look it up. Well, we have a manual for everything from high rise fight, uh, high rise fires to snake bites or double shootings. You can't look it up on the way to the call. You got to know what you're doing when you get there. So the same thing with the management, you have to lay things out so far in advance that as things continue to develop, you just kind of plug them in. But there's a tremendous amount of uh, preparatory planning that takes place. And probably, you know, I don't think people understand um, just how far in advance you have to plan to make things look like it's easy. And is that, you think, the biggest misconception folks have? Or do you think there's something else that people don't understand about uh, what it takes to put on an event like yours or like what the Ferenskis do? Uh, two things. They have no idea how much planning and time it takes, and they have no idea how much money it takes. It is very, 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 very expensive to do. Um, and people don't understand that the event organizer, such as myself, uh, or, or Ben Ferensky, or, uh, uh, who does a great job at fly fishing shows, um, when we sign for a building, we we're going to pay X no matter what happens. All of their money is guaranteed. It is all guaranteed how much you pay for the building. Some of them will say, well, here's the rent for the building, and you have to pay this much for security, and you have to pay this much for electricity. Oh, and here's how much you have to guarantee us in food and beverage sales. And P.S., if we don't sell that much, whatever we lack, you're paying us. So there's no risk on anybody but the event organizers from the from the global standpoint, right? So people don't understand how much money it takes and how far in advance um, you have to work, just months and months and months in advance. Um, and I'm convinced some of the people that maybe don't have the best experience um, 
at going to fly fishing shows is because they do it at the last minute. And then they're paying extra for the booth. They're paying extra for the hotel room. Maybe they don't have, they're not in a position that they like on the floor. Well, that all comes because you wait until the last minute. And um, the farther in advance everyone gets, the better it is to promote things and, and to come across as being well organized. So it takes a lot of preparatory planning. And I also think <clears throat> that you have to be able to listen to what other people tell you. Because ultimately, even though I'm quote unquote in charge, nobody cares. The public wants what they want. So you need to listen to your vendors or the other speakers or other people in the industry say, hey, I think we might, maybe we should try this or maybe we should try that. Or, you know, I didn't like that a whole lot. Why, why wasn't the light any better in that room or, or whatever, whatever the topic is. So I think you have to be in a position of constantly wanting to hear from the vendor and the public about what you can do to make things better. I, I remember the, in, that very first event I did, I was exhausted at the end of the, beyond any kind of tired I ever felt before, because a lot of it's an emotional, uh, you get your emotions tied up in it too. I saw a young man walk out with his dad. He was probably 12 or 13 and his dad was beside him and he had one of those Cortland red start outfits. And I know that dad bought that fly rod for his son. And I thought that is really cool. That is really cool. And for a split second, I was back on that pond in Southfield. And I thought, that's one of the reasons why I want to do this. Because I want to give people an opportunity to connect with the outdoors, connect with their friends and their family members. And, you know, every kid, it seems like, over the age of two has got their face stuck in front of a computer or a cell phone or something. And as an, as someone who strongly believes in the outdoors and has a strong conservation ethic, we have to get our young people off the phone, off the computer and out in the field and on the stream. Otherwise there won't be anybody to advocate for who wants to go to the national park. If you can just see it on Instagram, right? But you cannot live off of Instagram. It's it's a mirage. You need to get out there and experience it with your mom, with your dad, uh, with your brothers and sisters, uh, with your Trout Unlimited program or your Project Healing Waters event. And um, that's one of the reasons why I try to put these events on because I know people look forward to them. And they learn a lot. Our, our festivals are all about learning. And um, I hate it. Uh, I hated when I went into that fly shop that first time that I got talked down to like I was some 10-year-old because I didn't know I was in the fly shop. I despised that. Uh, and as a result, we really strive to make everybody, and I do mean everybody, uh, no matter how little they might know about fly fishing, feel welcome and in an environment where they can they can succeed at the festivals. And you, I know you've told us a little bit about what the attendees can can expect. Talk, talk about um, your vendor experience. What what can your vendors expect at your your events? Um, well, they can expect uh, a lot of attention to detail. Um, most of them who have never been there before are shocked that we hand out a full color program, which is very expensive uh, to produce. They'll find that we we do pay a lot of attention to detail. Um, I have people that I work with, um, like my, my head of uh, volunteer operations, Marty Laxberg, um, is very in tune to what vendors are where and, and what they need and helping them get their stuff into the building or if they get there late. Uh, John Bowden, who also um, does a great job uh, helping me um, John is, um, uh, Marty's a, a retired Marine and, and is the program lead, ironically enough, uh, program lead for Quantico. And John is a uh, Lexington City Fire Department. 
employees. So he and I have the whole firefighters thing going on. And then uh, Gail Benzinger um, helps uh, with all the wineries and the brewery um, and helps with ticket sales. And we really, we know our, we know our vendors. Uh, I was thinking today, uh, some of them have literally watched my children grow up, have gone from, they were toddlers to now they're sitting behind the ticket counter. And that's kind of cool. Some of these people you only see once a year or twice a year. And uh, so it's nice to, to, to be in an environment where you're going to have fun and, and you're going to celebrate fly fishing, but it's a good business opportunity too. I mean, in the end, these vendors are coming because they have to sell products, whether it's uh, Ken Gangler selling trips to Canada um, or Green Top selling products in Richmond or Temple Fork Outfitters selling uh, a, a BVK rod. Um, they have to have an environment where the public feels comfortable and says, you know what, I think I'm going to buy this rod. I think I'm going to buy this particular vice or these fly time materials because if they don't like it, if they don't make a connection, there's no need to get it. So I think the vendors get that. They appreciate it. And they like the fact uh, in Virginia that uh, that the wineries are there and we have specialty food vendors. And in, in Texas, we have uh, microbrewery beer. So it's a, it's a different, it's a different take. It's a little bit of a different vibe and it's a little more laid back, but it's, it's a lot of fun. And I think the vendors pick up on that. Yeah. And so you're in, you're in Doswell, which is just by Kings Dominion, uh, just North of Richmond and your dates are January 12th and 13th. Um, and I know we've talked uh, about, um, kind of the general ambiance of the event, but, um, I'm sure you've got personalities that are going to come in, uh, that people have heard of that are going to teach class classes, and they're going to have access to spend time with some people that they might not otherwise have a chance to spend time with. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited. Uh, we're doing something a little different this year. Um, we go out of our way to, uh, invite speakers here that are good with the public. Um, we don't quite frankly have speakers that think that they're super important. Uh, there are some people in the fly fishing community that think that they're, you know, one step below Marcus Welby, right? They think they can heal people because they're good at fly fishing, but all the people that we have in the, as instructors get it and they're very personable. Um, one of the things that I'm really excited about this year is we've always gone out of our way to make new people feel welcome. Uh, this year, we're adding classes specifically for experienced anglers. Um, I'm pretty excited. Uh, we've got three separate classes that we're offering on Friday. So that's the day before the festival. So you can come take these specialty classes before the festival actually starts. That way you don't miss any of the festival. So I have uh, Mike Taylor, nationally registered paramedic from Fins West, who will be teaching a freestone uh, free first aid class. And a lot of guys don't think about it, but what, what happens when you're on the stream and your buddy gets hurt? You have no training. You don't know what to do. It's not like your cell phone works. <clears throat> maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, because you're somewhere out in the backwoods or uh, in somewhere that, that's not conducive for ready communication. What do you do? How do you treat them? How do you get them back on the drift boat? Or how do you get them back on the raft? Or how do you know how to treat them for an emergency that may come up. And there's certain things, even if you don't do the right thing, there's things to know not to do. Right. So I'm excited to have uh, Mike Taylor uh, coming in from Colorado to teach that class uh, on Friday. Also my good friend, Matt Sapinski from Michigan will be teaching a tailwaters and giant brown trout um, class uh, from noon until uh, about 5.30, I believe, on Friday. Matt's latest book, uh, Brown Trout, Salmon Nexus, will be out. The people that take his class will also get the book. And then the other advanced class that we're teaching on Friday is uh, taught by Mac Brown, Advanced Casting Skills class. This is a very, very advanced class. This is not even for people that I would consider to be um, – Intermediate anglers, you you got to be around a while to be able to take advantage of this particular class. 
uh, but it's, it's an all-day class, and it is very intense. Uh, and it's basically a fly casting instructor's level class. So you're going to go through all the things, perhaps, that you would see challenged on a, a certified casting instructor's class or a master certified casting instructor's class with Fly Fishers International. Now, it's not a certification course, uh, but Mac is. Uh, a master certified casting instructor, and he is going to go over all those points uh, very much in detail. And people that take these specialty classes, uh, whether it's Max class or Matt's class, also get their book uh, and admission to the festival. On uh, Saturday and Sunday, we have um, beginner classes and advanced casting classes uh, for casting students. And then I had Peter Stitcher come in from Colorado doing a micro-brew, a mayflies and micro-brew class. And it's two hours long, and we give you a ticket for a beer, uh, which you get from Steam Bell, and you sit in class with this biologist and spend two hours going over how to identify insects and how to match the hatch. And then at the end, uh, you get 10, 10 trout flies to take home. So... Uh, we're very much about giving people their money's worth and then some, and it's unusual. These classes um, that we're teaching on Friday, uh, you can't get anywhere else. They've never been offered anywhere else, and this is kind of a crazy thing for me to do, but I just feel like we have so many people that come from so far away. Um, we've already sold tickets for the Festival in Virginia to people from as far away as Vermont. Right. So if people are driving eight, nine, ten hours to get here, they're pretty excited. So I thought, well, why can't we offer some specialty classes from people like Matt Sapinski and Mike Taylor and, and just do something that's never been done before? So we're offering those in Virginia and we're also going to be offering them uh, in Texas, too. So just something for the uh, you're always trying to add something new or trying to take a different edge or a different approach. And I wanted to offer some specialty classes for experienced anglers to, to give them something to help take them to the next level. As far as the other speakers you were talking about, uh, I'm very pleased that Jason Randall will be back this year uh, teaching uh, about nymphing. And so will uh, George Daniels. He'll be giving a streamer class. Uh, my good friend, Ed Javorowski will be doing uh advanced casting classes and a lot of his classes are sold out already so there's not a lot of those um opportunities left but um you know they're free walk-up classes too and we don't charge anything for children um if your kids are 16 and under they get in for free boy scouts get in for free with their uniform matter of fact you can come and your son can get their daughter can get his um Fly Fishing Merit Badge class cost absolutely nothing um, because of our close relationship with the uh, Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation's Take Me Fishing program. We offer these classes at no charge. So last year we had one, one Boy Scout came from as far away as New Jersey because he really liked the idea of taking the class. So um, Trout Unlimited will be there. Matter of fact, Chris Wood, the CEO of Trout Unlimited, will be there this year. And he'll be talking to people about some of the challenges that uh, TU is facing. And people will get to enter for uh, free membership with TU. So, um, I mean, there's there's a lot there's a lot going on. It's got to be something. There. It sounds like there's something there for just about everybody. Where can people find more information about the show? Uh, the Fly Fishing, uh, the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival can be found at our website, which is www.vaflyfishingfestival.org and for those in the southern part of the state um, we'll be doing our third annual Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival um, March 23rd and 24th and that is www.txflyfishingfestival.org Ah, and uh, rumor has it that you've got a special promo code for our listeners for your event in Virginia we do, we do. Uh, for our Virginia listeners, uh, they can get 15% off of everything. Whatever class they want to take, their admission uh, for a limited time, and they just put in the promo code ARTICULATEFLY. So um, 
when you go to the website and you click on tickets, figure out what you want. There'll be a, uh, to the right, you'll see a balance and then it'll say promo code. And there you just write in articulate fly, all one word, and they will get a 15% discount across the board on anything just for being an articulate fly listener. Well, I really appreciate that, Bo. And what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you? Uh, they can reach me um, at my website, www.bobeasley.com, which is just my name, B-E-A-U-B-E-A-S-L-E-Y. Or they're more than welcome to drop me an email at fishutopia, which is F-I-S-H-U-T-O-P-I-A, fishutopia at comcast.net. Well, that's great. Well, Bo, I really appreciate you spending some time with me this evening. Thank you, Marvin. I had a blast and uh, really have enjoyed listening to your show uh, and was honored to be on the podcast myself tonight. Thanks so much for uh, for providing me this opportunity and for putting on a program that listeners like me can really enjoy. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's been great having you. And, and folks, on December 21st, I'll be chatting with Matt Sapinski. Um, and don't forget, our sponsor this evening was Jesse Brown's Outdoors and Sharing Corners in Charlotte, North Carolina. Give those uh, guys a shout and uh, do some of your holiday shopping. They're great people. I've been uh, been shopping with them for probably the last 15 years or so. Thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight. Um, if you do me a favor and give me a review in iTunes, I'd really appreciate it. And you can find our podcast anywhere podcasts live on the Internet. Um, if you want to make it even easier, if you just go to the website and subscribe to the newsletter, you'll get everything that we do every week, every blog post, every podcast delivered to your mailbox every Saturday morning. Thanks, everybody. Tight lines and good night.